My name is Will Ingraham, and I'm a disciple of Christ. I've been married to my beautiful wife, Wendy, for 13 years, and she's the most beautiful creature God ever made. We have three awesome kids, Liam, Brielle, and Taryn, and they're the light of my life. Yeah, I work at a firm just down the road here for the last... Try again, without saying yeah. Did I say yeah? Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I work at a firm just down the street here for the last 14 years uh, in technology. My role in the community has been mostly defined by some of the people that I know at my company, but Wendy and I wanted more for ourselves too, to be a more important member of the community by joining a church like Impact. We've been here for the last nine years. Being a member of the community really means helping lead others and learn from others as well. So we've been a part of life groups ever since we started here. And we lead one today with some awesome people. When I was 11 years old, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. I was going to Camp Rogers and they required a physical. And a lot of things were occurring that were very abnormal for a fifth grader to experience. So going to the doctor, finding out that I was a diabetic uh, was pretty traumatic at the time. When I was a junior in high school, I went on a mission trip with my previous church. We traveled to Mexico, and two days into the mission trip, my body just kind of reacted to the environment in a way that was just very strange. And my blood sugars were completely out of control, upwards of 400 to 500. I had a fever of 105 for about two to three days, and it felt like I was dying. Before we had gone on the mission trip for the church, I had had a moment of vulnerability where I shared with a family friend uh, some of the interactions that I had with a previous girlfriend. Um, and it, it wasn't crazy. We weren't hitting home runs, but um, we were almost sliding into third. That being a couple weeks before we had the mission trip, I had kind of forgotten about it. What I didn't know is during the time when I was down in Mexico, those details were shared with my sister and my sister had shared those details with my mom while we were gone. So when we returned home, my father and I, and I don't think anything uh, with ill intent was meant by this, but I was met with a hug that said, glad you're okay, but we need to talk. The family discussion that happened felt more shameful and felt more uh, condemning of the things that I had done. In that moment, what I had done is created a I will never statement and the I will never statement I created was, I will never discuss anything of this nature with anyone else. That had all happened in 2003, and it had taken my mind and my heart and my soul 19 years until that was actually revealed to me through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicted me right away to pray for and to forgive the person that had actually shared those details with my sister. That started all of that because I had also forgotten just resentment I held for her and her whole family. It took some time for me to recognize that from 2003 to 2022, there was a level of inauthenticity throughout me trying to get the head knowledge of being a disciple and the heart knowledge, never really feeling completely right with God because I, had, I hadn't dealt with the secret sin in my life. From the outside, playing 
music and church for years. I could shield myself from ever having conversations about those or leading a life group. I could shield myself from having conversations of those. But one thing that just did not sit right with me was why do I have the mental state that I've, I've never experienced contentment? And really what it felt like is me being on the Mount of Olives as a disciple asleep and Jesus telling his disciples, stay awake and stay with me that you do not fall into temptation. And that's what it felt like to me was being a disciple asleep and falling into temptation time and time again and living a discipleship that wasn't authentic. This choice to live more vulnerably and get into a deeper degree of accountability with bringing in my best friend, Wendy, into the battle with me and having accountability with other men. I feel for the first time in my life that the level of contentment that I've been able to experience, that's where the freedom is coming from. There is freedom from discontentment. Being a disciple of Christ, something that was revealed to me earlier in my life was, you're not just a Christian, you're a disciple which means you're not just believing, but you're actually doing. And how that's looked like to me is by actualizing scripture, holding every thought captive in Christ, putting on the full armor of God every day, praying as I wake up and praying as I go to sleep. Your relationship with Jesus is very important and that freedom can get unlocked through being disciplined and being a disciple. It's the first part of the word. You're a disciple, therefore you need discipline. And discipleship and how that matures in every individual's life will look different, but it starts with your relationship with Jesus. My name is Will Ingraham. I'm a disciple of Christ. Discipline equals freedom, and freedom is unlocked through a relationship with Jesus. What was that? Let's go. Let's go. I'm ready to go after that. Hey, guys, uh, it was Will's birthday this last week. He's 57 years old. Can we go ahead and give Will a true impact, appreciative round of applause for sharing that with us? Uh, it, takes, it takes some kind of courage, doesn't it, church, to get up and actually share our testimony? Because when we get up and we start sharing vulnerably and we start telling people what Jesus is doing in our life, the enemy does not like that. And it is scary. And we know and we feel this sense of other people are going to reject me and other people are going to think poorly of me and it's going to be like I vomited all over this place. And that's not what God does with our testimony. He does extraordinary things. He helps create pathways that break us free in our own lives because we had the courage to actually get up and say what Jesus has been doing in our life. And I just want you to know something. Both Will and Wendy went through a whole lot of prayer and a whole lot of like struggle over the course of several months to, for him to be able to get up and tell his story to us like this. Now, if you don't know Will and Wendy, they are awesome. Wendy was the one leading worship right here this morning. Will was back here. He purposely wore his Jocko t-shirt again this morning so that if there are anyone here that want to talk with he or Wendy further about what it's like 
like to realize that there has been true trauma in your life, that you've been carrying trauma forward, that you, that you maybe for the first time are reckoning with and that you want to do something about what that's doing to keep you in bondage. He, they would love to talk. They would love to talk. They're available. Um, you can identify Will because he is in that Jocko t-shirt and you'll quickly realize I lied. It is his birthday. He's not 57 years old. Okay. Some of you are like, what? That dude is 57. If I look that good at 57, if I look that good at 57, I'll be really, really happy. Uh, cause I don't think that ship has already sailed quite frankly for me. Um, when I, I, I just want to welcome you this morning. I know, I know you've fought to get here. And so everybody here, I just trust you're here. You're awake on purpose and you want to be here this morning. Is, is there an amen to that? Right. You had to go through some stuff quite literally to get here. And then when you pulled in, you were like, oh, they welcomed us with purple snow. I, I just need to say this. The purple snow is a new thing for us, okay? So I don't know if you'll see that every week. I pulled in um, and was like, what are we doing? I mean, we're really attractional now, you know? We're coloring snow for people. Uh, it, it is the best kind of salt. It clears those sidewalks immediately so that you're safe as you walk in. But boy, is it a beacon when, when you come around the corner, right? Right? Uh, my name is Ryan. It is a privilege to bring the word of God this morning, church. And I mean that the, from, from all the depth of my heart, it is a privilege to get together and unpack his word and listen to what he wants to say and open our hearts to hear from him. And I, and I believe that if you're here, you came today specifically because you want to hear from him. You want to be affected and you want to be changed by his word. And that's, that's what we get to do. So um, I'm going to go ahead and pray and then we're going to jump right into this story. Let's, let's pray together. God, I just... I just ask that you would fill these next moments the same way that you filled these moments of worship that we just experienced. The moments as we heard Will's story, the moments that have already occurred. God, I pray that you, as, as, as you do, that you've taken the barriers, that you've broken the barriers, that you're already working on chains to free us, that you're showing yourself to us as, as we enter into this incredible thing we get to do called church together in the corporate setting. God, I just, I want your presence here today and this morning in a powerful way. I want you to infuse these moments with meaning. And so God, we ask for your word to do what you say it will do. Use it, wield it, show us that it is living and active and that it divides places of our soul that must be divided and that it knits together parts of us that need to be knit together again God we believe in you we ask for you we we expect you now I pray these things in your name Jesus amen, amen. 
And, and also, guys, as we start, you, you, you certainly have noticed this, but since our numbers are a little bit down, your energy needs to be a little bit up to compete, right? All right, that's what's gonna happen here in the, uh, in the next few minutes together. So, so here's the deal. Will's story just lines us up so perfectly for Genesis chapter 18, or chapter 13, excuse me. We will get to Genesis chapter 18, but we're in 13 this morning. So open up your device, open up your Bible, get on there, chapter 13 of Genesis. We're gonna unpack this story start to finish, and we're gonna look for some nuggets. We're gonna mine together. There's some incredible stuff here. And this is what struck me the last couple weeks as I was listening to um, the message Jay gave a couple of weeks ago on the, the last part of chapter 11, Abraham's life, kind of the beginning, and then, the, um, and then all of chapter 12 last weekend. Some things that I just have not been familiar with about this guy, this father of our faith. These are descriptions that were, that were given. These are descriptions I grew up with in understanding Abraham and Abraham's life. Like Father Abraham, hero of our faith. He's referenced in Hebrews. He's referenced in Acts. He's talked about in Peter. Like the New Testament points us back to this guy, Abraham. And I, I'm getting geeked about, about, um, about sharing and about digging into his life. And then the last two chapters we just went through happened. I'm like, wait a minute. What? Stop the presses. He, he does leave, bravely leaves Ur, right? This is a couple weekends ago. He, he's called by God and he goes. But guys, in case you're not reading very close, he doesn't make it very far. God said, go, leave your land, leave your, your home and leave your kindred and go to a land I will show you. And he starts out and he leaves his land and he leaves his home, but he doesn't leave his kindred. And I'm noticing that like, okay, kindred is family. And he basically took the whole family with him. And we can start to see our humanity in the story instead of this Father Abraham guy. But it gets worse. He gets to Haran. He stays in Haran. If you think about this, he doesn't stay in Haran for a couple of days. He stays in Haran for decades. He settles in Haran. He starts making money in Haran. He starts profiting in Haran. And then his dad dies. And then there's sort of this like, oh, I should probably go the rest of the way to the land of Canaan. He gets to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And he gets there and he takes one look around at the rocks, the barren landscape, the lack of what he would see as the capacity for economic growth. And he's like, plus there's a famine. So there's people starving to death. He's like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And he heads to Egypt. And then things get really, really dark. As he goes to Egypt, he's scheming. He's crafting. He's strategizing. He decides to lie about his wife. This is what Jay talked about last week. We're catching up to the story. He lies and says she's his sister so that he can live because he's afraid they're gonna want her and kill him. So fear. And so that he can profit. And so in addition to deceit about his wife, he then sex traffics his own wife. This is not the father Abraham I grew up with. Guys, I don't know if you're getting it. Here's the father Abraham I grew up with. Father Abraham, 
had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, etc., etc., etc. I don't remember the rest. Come on, folks, do you remember this, that, that song? Did any of you grow up with that, that kitschy camp song about Father Abraham? Yes. Yes. The guy trafficked not just someone else, his own wife. And I'm like, what? Before we even got to that point, if he was on staff here, just like a pastor and church leader here, I'd have fired him seven times. <laughs> okay, so, so lest we miss who we're talking about, he's called a hero of the faith, and as we're digging into his story, it sounds more like a zero of the faith to me. And so here's what, here's what I want you to feel as we move into this. I want you to, to recognize that no matter how far you have fallen or how bad you have messed up, you are not too far for God to reach you. There is no distance he can't go. And I mean that about people who have already started in their faith because we'll see he has been to Canaan. He has built an altar. He has worshiped at that altar. And then he turned and he went to Egypt and he went the other way. So if that's you this morning, if you're wrestling with crazy things, this is a story that should give you some hope. Genesis 13, verse one. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negeb. He's going back to the promise. He's turned around. Now, Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. A lot of that was ill-gotten gain, folks. A lot of that was filthy lucre and he's still carrying it with him. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, underline that. And then Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. At the first, this is starting over. It is restarting. It's beginning again. This is Abraham's comeback story, church. And and notice something, he called upon the name of the Lord. He's talking to Jesus again. He's offering his heart. Here's what I don't wanna miss. I think God used the spectacular failure of Egypt as a really profound conversation starter with Abraham. Because if you notice in the text, the minute he decides to leave the promised land, the second that he turns and heads for Egypt, the conversation stops with God. The entirety of the time that he is in Egypt, he's not talking to God. Do you feel it? How often we find that in our desperation, in our most desperate moments, if we track back just a little bit, we can very often see, oh, the conversation stopped with God. I stopped talking to him. He didn't leave. He didn't forsake he didn't go away. No, no. He comes into Egypt. He's, he's literally like trying to protect Sarah, Abraham's wife, as Abraham is trafficking her. He gives Pharaoh and Pharaoh's men a bunch of diseases. He, he creates absolute havoc, but he's not talking. He's not talking to Abraham because Abraham quit talking to him. Abraham left. God didn't leave him though. Listen, here's the deal. Desperation is a powerful tool God uses 
He uses it to get us back into alignment with him. If you're desperate in an area of your life, that's a crucial marker to stop and pay attention to what God wants to say. I know some of you walked in here absolutely desperate. Stop, pay attention to what God wants to say in that desperation. Getting back to the promise is, is what we're working towards. And really simply in the text, and I don't wanna miss it. I'm not gonna miss it. We're gonna pay attention to this. This is what repenting is, church. This is repentance. And I'm not just talking to those of you who don't know Jesus yet and have never actually surrendered your life. I'm talking to those of us who know Jesus and have forgotten that repentance should be a discipline that we experience every single day. Yes. How many degrees am I off from true north? Because if it's just one degree, the enemy will use that. If it's just two degrees, the enemy will use that. If I am paying attention to my navigational beacons, I want to be dead on towards true north. God's promises in my life, what he wants for me. And everything else must be let go of. Everything else must be released. This is repentance. Here's the deal. This is turning back. He was in Egypt. He gets his butt kicked in Egypt. He gets kicked back and he's like, I'm going back to the place where I built the altar at the first. I'm going back to the place where I was in communion with God, where I was talking with God, where I was on his way and his path. That's where I'm going back to. But I'm not going back to that place feeling all good and hyped. I think he's driving back to that place like some of us leave work some days with an absolute sickness in the pit of our stomach because of what we we just did. That's how he's going back. And he comes back to this altar. Imagine this with me. Every rock that he built before, every one that he fit into place, the sacrifices he had made to God as he communed with him before, it's all there. He's turning back to this place. He's surrendering his way. He's releasing the hurt and the harm that he has done back to God. And he's changing his mind. Listen, there is a power to changing our mind. It's the portal through which God enters to change our heart. We can change our mind. We're given that agency and that power and that choice and that decision as humans. We can let go of the thing, turn and say, God, here's my mind, I change it. And you'll be amazed at what he can do inside your heart when you change your mind. This is the essence of repentance. Christian, follower of Jesus, how often we, we keep going in a headlong direction and we don't. We don't commit to this discipline. And some of you are out there and you're like, yeah, but you don't understand how bad it was or how far I fell. I, I may not, but you know what? Abraham does. Yeah. Amen. You know who else does? The God who received Abraham back knows how far it is. 
Even that, here's what I want you to hear. Yes, even that, whatever that is, the words you said that crushed someone, the heartbreak you caused in the one you love, the trust someone shattered in you by their unfaithfulness, the wounds someone else ripped open in your soul, the lives you've selfishly and callously discarded, the sin you feel like you cannot move past. God can redeem even that when we return to him and put it on the altar for him to burn up. And listen, when that happens, our lowest moments can lead to our boldest testimonies when we open back up to God's redeeming. You want a bold testimony? You go to the lowest moment, you give it up to him. Amen. Moves on. Look at what happens. And here's the deal. This is just so emblematic of what actually happens. A lot of us are like, okay, finally I'll repent. I'll be done, I'll give it up, and it'll all get better. No, that's not how it works. Because once you give it up and you turn back, guess what doesn't want you to turn back? Guess what wants to hold you in place? All the stuff that you just said I'm done with comes back. And strife is what happens. And it's strife because there's got to be full obedience and there hasn't been full obedience up to this point. And so Genesis 13, five says, and Lot who went with Abraham also had flocks and herds and tents. Lot who went with Abraham, underline it, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And Lot who went with Abraham, listen, here's my question. Lot was not supposed to go with Abraham. Remember, I said it earlier, Jason talked about it last couple of weeks. Lot was kindred, Lot was family, Lot was not part of the call, but Lot was Haran's son, Abraham's nephew, and Haran had died leaving a trauma bond between Abraham and Lot, and Lot could not let him go. And he had not let him go. In all of these moments, if you read back, Lot's right there. But Lot's not part of the call. In fact, Lot's heart, as we will see, is not committed to God. And so there's strife that's building because Abraham is carrying him with him. And my question is, what's trying to go with you that doesn't go with God? You guys remember in middle school, the question was, who are you going with? You remember that? Going together? The kids in here, you're like, oh, this is not how we say it today. I get it. I don't know how you say it today. When I was a kid, we were, who are you going with? You know? And you just know there's certain things, if you're going with this person, that this can't be going with you. There's, there's some really clear, if you're going with God, this can't be going with you. They don't work, they don't coexist. They don't play nice. And so you've got a decision to make. You've got a boundary to establish. Look at what it said. I mean, strife. I love this idea because it says could not support, the land could not support both of them dwelling together. 
inside of these confines of the promise God had made to Abraham, Lot could not be there. He, he could not be part of that without this strife. And the definition of strife, guys, is not a fun definition. Okay, some of us are like, oh, I don't hear strife very often. It's sort of old English. You know? Here's what it is. Here's my definition. It's contention. It's ongoing quarrel. It's repetitive argument. It's the drip that never stops. It's a feeling like that is just a nagging. It shouldn't be there. It's not right. Why do we keep ignoring it? The dictionary definition is vigorous, bitter conflict, intense rivalry. The biblical definition is legal quarrel or dispute. This is strife. Things we carry with us that are foiling God's plan and the Holy Spirit's work in us will cause strife with Jesus. It's strife with Jesus because it's trying to hijack the control station of your life. Matthew 6, 24, the words of Jesus, he says it this way, very, very, very to the point, our Lord. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both. And in this verse, both God and money is what he says. But you can fill in that blank with God and what? What is the thing for you? So my question, what's trying to go with you that doesn't go with God? Abraham's finally asking that question here, church. And he's ready to obey. Look at Genesis 13. We're gonna get into some boundaries that he sets. Then Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. Underline that. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Separate yourself from me. You go right, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. This is putting defined distance between. Boundaries, church, are what Abraham knew he needed to extricate his heart from continuing to go with someone who didn't go with God. Boundaries. Now, boundaries get a really bad rap in our culture. Our culture does not like boundaries. We use words like mean-spirited, judgmental, self-righteous. <laughs> We, we literally have taken a really good idea as a culture. I'm not saying that this is the church, but it certainly permeates the church. We've taken this really good necessary, necessary idea of the lines, the property lines that surround the perimeter of our soul and ourself. We've taken those and we've blurred those so badly that we're not sure how actually to protect preserve and grow or mature the heart, the center, the soul of who we are because that's just mean and that's just unkind. Look, look at what happens here. 
I want to give you one really poignant example. We're going to get into personal boundaries in just a second, but I want to look at corporate boundaries too. Do you know there are corporate boundaries? Really helpful corporate boundaries. And for the church, here's one that the world or the culture is just vitriolic about. Okay, here it is. Uh, For instance, we are called, we the church are called to love everyone. That's just true, no question. As followers of Jesus, we absolutely cannot choose to love only those who believe and act like us. We can't. We love all. We love even our enemies. We must love those who disagree with us even when disagreement gets so intense it becomes strife. But this doesn't mean we should compromise our beliefs or confuse others with our actions about who God is. Jesus loved those in bondage while hating, hating what enslaved them. Jesus loved the wrongdoer while dying to save them from the wrong they did. Jesus loved the hurting while healing what hurt them. Not accepting it, not saying that's okay, No, no, healing it. Jesus loved the broken while battling what breaks them, you see. So here, our culture has equated loving with approving, and they are not the same thing. There are times that the most loving thing we can possibly do is disagree and speak up about that disagreement. This is the tightrope. It is the tightrope. It is the linchpin. It it, it is the razor's edge for the church today. It demands, it demands healthy, wise boundaries around what love is and what sin is. And so let's look at this. Personal boundaries particularly. Boundaries are just property lines. Here's the the actual definition. They're geographic property lines or perimeters. They actually aren't walls. Very often we just think of walls. They're not walls. They give definition to jurisdiction. That's all they do. Who's got the jurisdiction in this zone? Boundaries are not unforgiveness, church. Forgiveness is required. In fact, it's an interesting thing to think of Uh, In the old uh, King James, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others who trespass against us. Trespass. Forgiveness. We forgive. That does not mean that we don't have good boundaries or healthy boundaries. Here's... Here's what boundaries are in in the deed that you would see at the courthouse. Okay, the courthouse deed says uh, that these perimeters define who owns, so ownership, who has responsibility in that zone, and who controls that particular property. Who decides what kind of landscape you're going to have in your yard? Who 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 defines um, what sort of what sort of care you're going to give to your lawn? Now, some of you didn't care about the landscape and some of you are like, the lawn though. I call the shots about the lawn. My wife doesn't even get to call the shots about the lawn. The lawn gets fertilized this way at this date at this time and then it gets cut this way. And then this way. And the lines, the 
<laughs> the, line, the lines can't look like that. I'm sorry, sweetheart. Get the machine back out. Um, I'm going to mow after you've just mowed. Right? This is our lawn. This is the jurisdiction of who we are. Personal boundaries are this. They're relational lines of the soul. Church, hear me. Personal boundaries, not geographic boundaries anymore, but personal boundaries are relational lines of the soul. They're the boundaries that communicate these things. Soul care, self-control, and relational responsibility. The jurisdiction of your soul. Henry Cloud says this, boundaries are what you allow and what you create inside the property lines of your soul, yourself, and your life what you allow and what you create. The property lines of your relational yard are the edges of your property that touch the neighbor's property and are all a part of a larger community of people. What you let in and what you create inside your yard are your choice, your decision, and your responsibility. These either contribute to the character of Jesus controlling you, calling the shots, or they detract from his plan and let foolishness and dissipation take over causing the property of your soul to, listen, stagnate and deteriorate. I promise you, if you think what I'm saying is you should call all the shots about what happened in your soul, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying you should give the control of who calls the shots in your yard to Jesus. And you should let nobody else come in to that jurisdiction and call the shots. I've got a neighbor and I, I need to just dis- make this disclaimer because last night I got lit up for this after service. So guys, here's the disclaimer. I know for a fact that my neighbor does not attend here. Okay? Okay? My neighbor just moved in and I have a goal. It's a personal goal. I believe God has called me to. I want to know everybody on my particular road and I want to bring, I want to share Jesus with everybody on my road and I want the people on my road to come to know Jesus, have a personal relationship with him and to flourish. That's what I want to happen on my road. So we do weird stuff. We're old school weird. I've I've cut it short of caroling at Christmas time because nobody likes carolers anymore, but I will come over to your door. I will knock on your door. I will I will give you cinnamon rolls. I will give you cherry pies. I can make a mean apple pie. If I made an apple pie for you, you should be really excited, okay? And you got to live on my road to, to, for that to ever happen. So for the rest of you. Here's the deal. Uh, my neighbor who just moved in has a dog that I hate. I hate how it looks, first of all. I'm, I'm just sorry. Something happened between whatever the two breeds are and it came out all weird. Okay, it's got, it, like, you know how there's shepherd ears that look like wolves, and then there's lab ears that look like uh, limp noodles, right? And somewhere between, like, a shepherd ear and a, and a lab ear, this dog just runs around like, <laughs> and I, that bothers me, because it's not symmetrical. I like things to be symmetrical. This dog's huge, too, and this dog, it, it wants to get on my property, Um, like, like it comes right up to the edge of the road, okay? And it stands there and it leers and it taunts and it's like, I want to fight. Now I have 
I have a brace of GSPs and my male GSP is like, yeah, dude, I want to fight so bad. Well, get over here. Let's see what happens. But I have an Invisifence that keeps my dogs in place. So, so, so the cursing and the arguing and the strife that happens across that boundary line between the dogs, I mean, if you could understand their language, uh, it'd be an R-rated movie for sure. But, and I gotta just say this, okay? And this is where this can't get out, but like, <laughs> I, I grew up in a farming community where you took care of those kinds of problems yourself. And some of you are already thinking it, and so I'm just gonna say it. Like, it, it, once upon a time, it was the three S's, you know? Yes. Shoot, shovel, and shut up, you know what I'm saying? And so I have to admit that in my soul, there have been moments where I'm like, man, that would just be easier to take care of the strife. My kids will go along the line and the dog is literally like its tail goes up and it bristles and it's just, you know, it, this dog, I, I think the dog is vicious, okay? And I'm, I have been redeemed by Jesus, so I'm not gonna shoot shovel and shut up. I want you to hear that, hear that, okay? You get me in big trouble otherwise. That, that's not gonna happen. But I have, I have had to work extra hard to figure out how to preserve the boundaries of my property. Yep. How to make sure that what protects my family, what provides for my family, what makes things flourish and grow is what happens on my yard, Amen. in my turf, and not some dog that's gonna come poop in my yard dig up my landscape, attack my other dogs, kill my chickens, and scare my kids away. That's not happening. Okay? Here's the deal with boundaries, church. They're so applicable. Don't let the neighbor's dog poop in your yard or kill your chickens or wreak havoc, okay? Healthy boundaries help you and I, as followers of Jesus, respond to and handle these types of Klingons. Okay, look, listen to them. Someone who's using their addiction to manipulate and control you. Someone who's taking their uncontrollable anger at life out on you. Someone whose sinful lifestyle often compromises your own integrity. Do you hear that? Someone whose negativity tends to turn your mind towards gossip or complaint every time you're with them. Someone whose opinion about you matters so much that you rarely share your thoughts, your real thoughts with them. These are problems. These need boundaries and definition relationally for, for the Holy Spirit to flourish inside the temple that is you. And it's not just people. It's not just other people. I would say other people are harder, but here's a few more. Something that causes you to waste excessive amounts of time. Exhibit A, your phone. How about this one? Something that's consuming your mind with negativity. Exhibit B, your phone. How about this one? Something that's continually making you angry or angsty. Exhibit C, your phone. Something that introduces temptation and lures you towards sin. Something that you obsess over, can't put down, or wouldn't know how to let go. These are things that are trying to go with you that do not go with God. Get them out of your yard, church. 
We're gonna move into decisions and I wanna predicate decisions as, as, as Abraham makes his decision. I wanna predicate it on this fact. Wise decisions come out of people who have set healthy boundaries. See, when you set healthy boundaries, you have space to make wise decisions. You, you, have, you have garden area where those wise decisions can actually grow, take root and thrive. So here, Genesis 13, 10 says this, and Lot lifted up his eyes. Remember, Abraham was like, separate from me. But you get to choose, Lot. You get to choose first. Whatever you want, take it. Go. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, circle, highlight, underline, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's gonna happen coming up here. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent near Saddam, underline near Saddam. Now, the men of Saddam were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The first thing that I want you to see as we unpack this is just that the, the difference between decision-making that Abraham makes and decision-making that Lot makes. Okay, we're gonna contrast those two things and we're gonna, I hope, see how we can make better decisions going true north and in God's direction. Look at, look at the difference as Lot lifted up his eyes. Here's the deal. He's in the driver's seat of his decision. That is evident throughout. He is the one who's gonna call this shot. There's no consultation. There's no consideration uh, with the Lord. Amen. Look at Lot's decision-making versus Abraham's decision-making. Lot decided with only himself and his interest in the driver's seat. Abraham decided with God's plan driving and others, in fact, Lot's interest in mind. Lot picked the easiest way. This is convenience. Abraham picked the hard way. This is challenge. Lot went towards the comfortable and the secure. This is faith in self. Abraham went toward the uncertain and obedience. This is faith in God. Lot chose what looked good on the surface. That's shallow. Abraham chose what required looking underneath the surface. That's depth. Lot chose to move closer to the line of sin and depravity. Remember Sodom and the wickedness? He moved closer to sin and depravity. Abraham chose to stay far away from the allure of sin again. And he did that in Canaan distance. Lot goes back towards the best and the worst of his past. The memory of the Garden of Eden. Oh, so easy, so convenient, so good. And then Egypt, the worst. Neither will satiate, neither will solve. Do not go back towards the past. Go towards the future that God has for you. It really is like Lot took a page straight out of Abraham's playbook, how to get as close to sin as you can, like your uncle, by Uncle Abraham. See, Lot defaulted back to the lowest common denominator thinking. 
he defaulted to self-reliance rather than to God-reliance, back toward the past and comfort and convenience and ease and self-gratification. And this is some stinking thinking, church. We gotta get it out of our heads. This is really, really easy because I think it's subconscious to us as human beings. Uh, but, but it goes something like this, and we've got to get rid of it to make wise decisions. Here it is. If it's not wrong, it's all right. If it's not illegal, it's permissible. If it's not immoral, it's acceptable. If it's not over the line, it's fine. This is lowest common denominator thinking. It says something like this. How low can I go without sinking too far? If, if, if that's the question you're asking, you're asking the wrong question. Amen. If you're wondering, oh, what decision do I make? Even going back to the boundaries, the crazy part about uh, Abraham's decision to, to put distance between he and Lot is that it actually causes peace. Yeah. It actually creates space for him to have a healthy relationship with Lot. Just a few chapters later, Lot's in all kinds of trouble. Guess who comes to the rescue? Abraham. So even those boundaries that are so hard, they make it possible for peace because it's wisdom. It's asking the right question, not the lowest common denominator question. Here's the application for this kind of decision-making. If you make decisions according to Lot's model, it looks like this, living together before marriage because it seems financially beneficial. Man, it got real quiet in here. It's, it's hard. I do premarital counseling all the time. I get it. It makes all sorts of human sense financially, right? And you know what it does? It puts you right up against the wall of temptation and straight up disobedience to the word of God. Amen. But it's easy. It's convenient. Don't do it. People who cohabitate before they get married, there's an 80% higher divorce rate. 80% higher. And that's the, you can bank on that statistic. How about this one? Taking the promotion even though it means you'll rarely see your family. Dating someone who doesn't really follow Jesus because he's really nice. Jumping on board a get-rich-quick scheme because your friend pressured you. Don't do that. <laughs> Spending too much time gaming or scrolling instead of parenting your kids. Cutting corners at work to meet quotas even though quality and morale will decline. Accepting a grade that doesn't represent you because it's easier than studying. Listen, students in here, this matters. You, you matter and the decisions you make to work hard I, you're not a genius. You're not a genius. There, I said it. Edison said genius is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. Edison said that. Okay? Working is what will give you the representative grade that matters. But if you're just going to back away in fear from challenging yourself by studying that material and working hard at that material, then you are not moving in God's way. If he's called you to study, then you study. You make the best of it. You turn that into something amazing because you are a follower of Jesus and you've got his power and his strength and his might at your right hand and you will make a difference because that material you're going to master matters. 
Go after it. Shading, here's the last one, shading the truth a little bit so your spouse doesn't know everything. Uh Uh-uh. Then something keeps going with you that won't go with God. So what we need to do is look at Abraham's school of hard knocks decision-making process. This is the one we need to start using in our lives. And look, it starts with, he waited and leaned in for God to direct his next steps. He leaned in. He didn't lean away. He leaned in. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. I actually love what Tim Keller says about this verse because this verse gets drowned out by the static and the white noise of popularity. We don't even pay attention to what it means. If you're gonna stop asking the lowest common denominator question, then you're gonna have to start asking the top best question. And it is this, what is the wisest thing to do? Let that be the guide to your decision-making. And here in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your, all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. You know what trusting in the Lord with all your heart is? It's not leaning on your own understanding. Back to Abraham and Lot. Lot leaned on his own understanding. Don't do that. And, and just in case you need an example, here's a good one. Do you remember how your 15-year-old self looked at your 10-year-old self and was like, what an idiot. Church, do you remember that? Because I certainly remember that. I thought my 10-year-old self was the stupidest kid on the planet and that my 15-year-old self had arrived until I got to 25. And then I was like, my 15-year-old self was a moron. And then uh, I got to 35 and I started to realize, okay, but now my 25-year-old self was stupid and must have been on some drug or psychedelic because that was ridiculous. And now I've arrived. No, 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 wait, maybe I haven't. And then at 35, or at 45, I started looking back at 35 and guys, it just keeps on going. If you're, uh, uh, if you're 65 in here and you're, you know, you're shaking your head like, yeah, yeah, all you young people, just wait till you hit 75. And so it's so self-evident to us when we put it that way. It makes sense to us. Oh yeah, wasn't that bright? Wasn't the best move? Don't lean on your own understanding. This is what Abraham does. He trusts God with all of his heart here. Genesis 13, 14 says, the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, see that, Lot's gone. The thing, the Klingon is not there anymore. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are now, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see, I circle that. I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, rise, Abraham. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built another altar to the Lord. Look at 
Full circle. He's back in right relationship. And guys, I'm not for a second pretending that it gets perfect. Repentance is truly a daily discipline for those of us who follow Jesus. But he has come back. His comeback story is moving forward. And I wanna just leave you with this idea. God said he is responsible for the outcome. Notice that. When you leave here today, notice that because our tendency is to conflate obedience with the outcome. What we like to do in our decision-making is we like to think um, you and me and I, we are responsible for the outcome. God said he would do it. You know what we're responsible for? Obedience. We're responsible in the text, as God said, now rise, Abraham, and walk through the land. Explore the land. Move around. Experience the land. Begin to make the land flourish. Abraham, I, I am responsible for the outcome. It's my promise to you. You just have to obey. As a church, I just challenge you today as we finish with the decisions you make, you are not responsible for the outcome. You are responsible for the obedience. God is responsible for the outcome. And he will, because he said he will. He'll make. You can take a picture of this slide and then we're gonna pray. Here are some questions I thought just to condense it down for good decision-making. Ask these questions this week. Ask them later this afternoon. Ask your spouse, ask your friend, do do I usually make decisions this way? Is Jesus the first and primary person you turn to with your decision? Just real simple. Is he the first one and the most important? Is God's word the first and primary map you use to follow Jesus? Are you looking at that Bible and recognizing that thing will help you navigate to true north? That's what it's given for. Because if you're not, you're leaving all of it. And you're not leaving anything. You're you're, you're not actually employing the gift God has given. Are the people you trust who know and love the Lord the ones you seek for advice? If you're coming in here every weekend and you're a fly on the wall and then you're out of here and you're not in relationships and you're not participating and you don't know people that know Jesus and you don't have trusting relationships, get them. Because those will be the people that will guide you in the way of the Lord and not away from. What would happen if you stopped asking what's the path of least resistance and began asking what's the wisest and best plan? in your life, what would, what would change? God, we just give you this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how when we crack it open, it just talks to us. Thank you for stories of Abraham. Thank you for the prayer team that's gathering. Thank you for people's hearts here. Thank you for people who tuned, tuned in online. God, I pray a special provision over people who tu- turned in online because they couldn't, they couldn't get here today. I just ask that you would work through the screen, through the, through the camera, that your spirit would be working among them. And God, I just ask if there are things that we need to let go of, things we need to confess, things we need to repent from, that even today, where we are right now in this room, that we would just make a commitment to take a step toward you and away from that other thing. 
Holy Spirit, help us. We are not able to do it alone, and we know it. So we ask for your help. We pray these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. All right, hey, we will see you next week. Thanks for coming.